Welcome back to the Simulated Universe. I'm your host, Riz Verk. And in the first season, we focused very much on simulation theory and if we were living inside a video game. And uh, this season, we're going to focus on the idea of the metaverse and look at it from many different angles. Uh, you've probably heard the term, whether you're in the video game industry or not. Uh, everyone from the CEO of Facebook to Microsoft CEO is using the term now. And so our first guest in this new season is John Radoff. He's a uh, veteran startup um, and gaming entrepreneur. Uh, he, his pre previous company was called Disruptor Beam, which made uh, some popular games you may have heard of, like Star Trek Timelines or Game of Thrones Ascent. Uh, and the successor company to that is called Beamable, uh, which John is CEO of. They're making a live services platform for video game companies. And he also has a blog about the metaverse, uh, which he's going to tell us all about today. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Riz. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So uh, I know you've been writing, uh, you know, a lot about the metaverse lately. So, uh, you know, for my audience, uh, some of them may know exactly what the metaverse is, although I have a feeling even the experts don't know exactly what it is. But maybe you can start by giving us your favorite definition of what is the metaverse. And we can go a little bit into the history as well and how we got to where we are today. And then we can talk about, you know, where things will go in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think of the metaverse as the next generation of the internet, and it has a few interesting properties about it. I, I think it is also, unfortunately, one of these overhyped words now that everybody from Mark Zuckerberg on, on down are, are using this word. So it's, of course, become a little bit hyped. But before Zuckerberg came along, some of us were already talking about what it would be, or what it would become. And it's inspired by some of these science fiction ideas of living within immersive 3D worlds. And I guess one aspect of the way you can think of the metaverse is it's really taking all of this building of video games and game technology over the past several decades and using that to inform the whole next set of experiences that are going to be on the internet. So of course that will continue to include games and games that are bigger and more social and big virtual worlds and all of that stuff, but all kinds of immersive social experiences and live music, shopping, collaboration, work. Like I think it's going to affect absolutely every aspect of our lives. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of technology still to be created to deliver on all of that. But I guess the other aspect of it is I don't think of the metaverse as this thing like way off in the future where someday, I don't know, 10 or 20 years from now, someone's going to be like, okay, here's the, here's the metaverse. We finally did it. We built it and we can go in it now. I think of the metaverse is very much here right now. And it's about delivering activities instead of just transactions like the internet as it was originally designed was really good at delivering like go access a piece of information or do a transaction and make a purchase or something like that. But games and the metaverse, it's really about real-time immersive activities that you're doing online. You feel like you're there present. You've got a sense of self. And then it's also about just opening up this whole universe of real-time activity to creativity as well in the same way that like the World Wide web became a creative platform for people to create websites and all kinds of applications we all also opening this up to this whole world of you know billions of creators in the world that ought to be able to craft content in this environment so that's the metaverse okay well before we go too far down the futures uh, you know you mentioned uh, that this is a kind of a science fiction concept. And that's, of course, one of my favorite topics, which is how do things move from science fiction to reality? So uh, do you want to give an overview of the, the science fiction elements or, or even the novels or movies that you think you know, best depicted what the metaverse would be like? And then we can talk about how reality might differ from that as well. Yeah, well, I, I think there's one book and one movie in particular that brought it to the popular imagination. So science fiction author Neil Stevenson wrote a book called Snow Crash. Um, I mean, he wrote it when the internet was basically still more or less like an academic and military platform before anybody had really even logged in for the most part. It wasn't at 91 that I think Snow Crash was. Or it sounds about right. Around. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what he he envisioned something amazing for 91, which was a 3D immersive world that you could enter into 
And it would feel like real life while you're in it. You'd interact with other people. You'd go on all kinds of experiences. You'd play games. You'd hang out in like the virtual equivalent of nightclubs and stuff. And, and he had envisioned this. And he thought that it would really change all of society as, as people come into it. Um, and then later, there was a book, but probably better known as a movie now, Ready Player One. They didn't call, he didn't call it the metaverse. Neil Stevenson actually coined the term metaverse. But in Ready Player One, it's this thing called Oasis, which is basically the metaverse again, but a little bit updated using, you know, current, you know, closer to current virtual reality technology and stuff like that. Now, in both of those cases, I think the thing that I think isn't coming true is they both envisioned like the metaverse or the oasis in the case of Ready Player One being like one company would end up like owning everything and then we'd all be like customers of this one metaverse platform. It would be like a future in which like Facebook just won everything and Facebook like takes over and we're all just Facebook users for better or for worse if you want to do metaverse stuff. I don't think it's playing out that way. There's just so many pieces of this thing. I think it's going to actually return back to the roots of the internet. It's going to be decentralized or re-decentralized. Kind of, we went through this phase where like a lot of stuff like Facebook was built on top of the decentralized technology of the internet. But now we're kind of coming back to a set of technologies that are going to allow a lot more market participants in this, which I think is required because there's so many types of activities, behaviors, experiences that people are going to have within the metaverse. I, I just don't believe that like there's going to be the one company to rule them all. Well, so in uh, in Ready Player One, I think it was, was it called Gregarious Gaming Systems or something like that? Uh, I forget the name of the company, but you know, they were worth like a trillion dollars or something. Yeah, it's a trillion dollar <laughs> company. The whole plot revolves around the the idea that the um, owner of the company is trying to pass on his legacy to someone else who can control it all. Right. So I, I'm very worried about like a completely <laughs> authoritarian metaverse that we all have to live inside like that. Whereas much more interested in something where if you're creative, if you have an idea, you're just going to be able to do it yourself and you call the shots within your own virtual world that you create. And then all these virtual worlds will be connected with each other through the internet. Right. Now in Snow Crash, was there a single company? I don't remember. Uh, or was it more decentralized? It, it was basically one company, although it was actually the Association of Computing Machinery. So it was like a nonprofit or uh, something. It wasn't right. exactly, it wasn't spelled <laughs> out that well, but it was pretty clear that it was like some kind of single organization nonprofit, I guess, in the case of the ACM was responsible for overseeing it. Right. Now, I believe uh, in Snow Crash also, they had this idea of scaling down or up, uh, whether you were fully immersed or if you were somewhere where maybe your connection wasn't that good, uh, you could do like there was a guy from in the car logging into the metaverse or in a <laughs> truck, for example. I'm trying to remember the details. It's been a while now since I read Yeah. That. Well, and the, you know, the main character was the deliverator. He actually you know, was delivering pizzas was his, was his job. It's, it's a great book. Everybody should read it. At least read the first couple of pages because it's one of the best openings in science fiction. But yeah, I actually, I share that view of the way the metaverse is actually going to come out. Like, I don't think it's just a pure virtual reality that we go into and, and then we just sort of live there in immersive 3D space. In fact, I think the metaverse is not even necessarily 3D graphics. It can be 2D graphics. It could even just be audio. Like when I go into these newer social audio applications, for example, I feel a sense of self. It's an activity. I feel like that's actually part of the metaverse. So, Like, like Clubhouse? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Clubhouse is a, a perfect example of that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that that's quite interesting because I think uh, that, definition of the metaverse only came about recently. So again, if we look at the history, there were a couple of waves, like with Second Life, you know, back in 2007, 2008, there were these virtual worlds and everyone had a 3D avatar, but it was without virtual reality, right? Uh, now at that time, 
you know, there was a lot of talk about people will disappear into the virtual world. They're going to take classes there. They're going to have jobs there. We were getting our very first like uh, Second Life digital millionaires. Uh, and then it never quite, you know, took off to be, you know, beyond kind of a, a small, I mean, it was, it was a big enough phenomenon as it was, but in terms of actual adoption and reuse, it, there wasn't that much. So I was wondering, if, I don't know if you're familiar with that era of the yeah, incarnation of, of the metaverse. Uh, what do you think was different at that time versus what's happening now? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the scale is a lot different now, right? We've got billions of people online. Second Life is super important. And and actually, by the way, Second Life is still out there. It ha- It hasn't gone away. But why isn't it as big as other things today? Why isn't it like synonymous with the metaverse? Um, well, I think it certainly informed a lot of important aspects of what we're building, but you know, it's it's nichier. It's not super easy to build stuff in it. It's it's not at the level of just sitting down in front of, say, Unity or, for that matter, something like Roblox, which has gotten you know much further ahead in terms of that complete top to bottom experience where you and your friends can just go into something and there's developer tools to just make stuff very easily. So I think the things that have gotten scaled out have just really made it super, super easy to create on the platform. And Second Life, you know, never quite got there from a development standpoint and its business model was very specific. It was all sort of based in this idea of virtual land ownership. And everything kind of stemmed from that. So it was like one business model that kind of related to just about anything you did elsewhere in it. Even if you were buying like a costume or something, the whole economy was still fundamentally premised on this idea of virtual real estate. Whereas I think there's going to be a lot of different business models in the metaverse, just as there is in games. So, you know, but it's also just, it came along at a different stage of the market. It came when there were you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people on the internet. Now we've got billions. So things change a lot as you have more people participating in things. Yeah. And I wonder if there wasn't an element of, you know, being an avatar was kind of a new concept back then, right? It was, uh, it wasn't something that a lot of, I mean, young people played games, but not like today, right? (laughs) Where they spend a lot more time just inside the social world. Whereas back then, even a lot of the Second Life people that I remember, there was a lot of older folks and it was very different than I think what you see today. That's a very good point. And and one of the things that I have talked about on my blog is like one of the mega trends driving this is kind of the mainstreaming of virtual identity and just being online, playing games. Like look at look at all the people you know, or I'll look at all the people I know and ourselves, like how much of our identities today are caught up in what we do online. And how is that different than say 10 or 20 years ago, which is kind of the era of of second life. So, you know, whether it's playing an online game, being in social media, participating in esports, either as a player or a spectator, all of these things that we're doing are related to our online identity. And on top of that, you have a whole generation of people now who have basically grown up in that environment. They've grown up, you know, believing in their online identity. They're meeting with their friends from real, quote unquote, real life. Although I don't actually like this distinction of real versus virtual. I think it's like physical versus versus online. Um, Yeah, I think there was a there was a study recently that found that like kids, teenagers hang out with their friends online several days a week. Like that, that's the norm as opposed to when I was a kid hanging out online, that would be like a niche nerd activity. Like no one would even know what I'm talking about. So. Right. Like in uh, war games, you would need a little uh, dial up modem back in the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when I was so yeah. Kid. So there is this big shift in cultural acceptance, you know, and what goes along with this idea of virtual identity is just, acceptance of the virtual world more generally too, whether it's um, virtual goods, virtual experiences, 
you know, cryptocurrencies, virtual assets, like people treat these things as real now because they are real. Like reality is a belief. So we treat it as real. And now we've got this generation or two even of people that um, have grown up with it. Plus maybe the people like, like you and I, who um, we were just a, a kind of ahead of the curve, I think. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll come back to cryptocurrency because I want to spend some time on, on that okay. and NFTs. But before we get there, I mean, let's fast forward from the Second Life era. Okay, you know, Ready Player One came out in 2010. And at that point, there really weren't a lot of commercial consumer virtual reality headsets. Uh, and things caught up with, uh, you know, the, the technology within a couple of years with Oculus, et cetera. Uh, yeah. And then there was kind of this excitement that, okay, where there's going, everybody's going to do everything in virtual reality. So that was another kind of, I don't know if it's a hype cycle, you'd call it, or, um, you know, but there was certainly a lot of investment in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, thinking this could be the way people interact with others. Uh, and that didn't really quite take off as well. What, what do you attribute that to? Um, well, you know, I think it's like a lot of things. People really underestimate the combination of the social structure that exists around technologies and also just basic things like the ergonomics of technologies. So like you take VR, for example. So first of all, VR like made people sick 10 minutes into it for years and years. And only recently have we even gotten good at getting past that because eye tracking and things like that have gotten a lot better. Um, but on top of that, like the whole tethered setup where you have to have like a whole room set up in your house, clear everything away. And like, you got all these wires dangling back to your computer. Like, I don't know, for some reason it never occurred to most people that that was just like a really unreasonable customer experience. So you just look at like, the Oculus Quest and just the simple act of untethering it yep. made it so much more accessible to millions of people. Now people are really enjoying using the Quest and you have got applications like Supernatural, this, which is this really cool fitness application that you can do within it where you can like go and like do a workout on the surface of Mars with trainers and compete against your friends, like all these social aspects and in VR, like it's really only working because you're not going to trip over the cable while you're doing <laughs> it. Right. So, right. But still, it's still this heavy clunky thing. We look like total nerds when we're wearing it. And, and like, I don't mind cause I'm a nerd. I, I like doing all this stuff, but like, and you're like shut out from the outside world. So the ergonomics just has to improve a lot over time. And we're on a trajectory of, you know, smaller batteries, higher speed networking, edge computing that might be as close as, you know, maybe even in our house down the street, maybe in our pocket, like your mobile device might actually be your edge computing device in the future to feed some of these things. That, that's kind of what some of the speculation on the Apple AR device is. I don't know if VR is currently conceived is gonna scale out to billions of people, but I, but I think AR might. AR, if we think of it as just really VR in a much smaller form factor, ideally something like smart glasses or something that is lightweight that we can take on and off and give me the option to either be fully immersed or have a transparent view into the world where it's then has lots of, you know, the augmented and augmented reality is just adding information, adding content to the world around us. So that I think, by the way, is the metaverse too. It's the metaverse isn't just going inside a computer and then living there. The metaverse is all around us. So it's going to be VR, totally immersed experiences, as well as enriching what we might call the physical world. Right. So I think that's interesting. So we're talking about interfaces, right? And, and how do you get in? And, you know, this is this uh, is kind of relates to what I was talking about earlier with even going back to Snow Crash. There were different ways to log in, kind of like if you're on YouTube, you know, from a mobile device, cellular versus on your laptop, you can scale up or down the you know, the resolution of the image, right? HD versus standard, uh, 720 versus whatever. Um, and so with AR, uh, you know, uh, how do you think that as a form factor? Well, let's start with science fiction because that's always a good place to start. What do you think is the best sci-fi kind of representation of what you're talking about with AR and the metaverse? Um, 
Well, I think, I mean, I think everybody looks at like Minority Report as a really good example of the interface. Now he's not wearing glasses. He's actually using like these projected interfaces and stuff. But I think that's kind of the way I anticipate some of the interfaces to work because I think it's going to start being much more gesture-based. It's going to use voice. It's going to use a lot of things that are not typing basically, right? Because typing in AR or VR, if you've ever tried it, it's a terrible experience. It doesn't, it's like, it just doesn't feel right. Your brain isn't wired to take advantage of that. Um, And that's been one of the problems with both VR and AR, I think is just how do you Keyboard sucks. Yeah, keyboard sucks, but (laughs) how do you give feedback? How do you point to things? You know, there was the hollow lens where you had to like kind of use your fingers uh, and kind of snap your thumb and index finger together. Uh, in a certain spot, which was, you know, not a great experience either. Um, how about yeah. Westworld? Did, have you seen the latest season of Westworld? Uh, yeah. I think it was three. Yeah. Where they would put on the, and the glasses were, first of all, they were the size of normal glasses. And then yeah. a person smart glasses. Appear, smart glasses. Exactly. Yeah. Which is what it has to be. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, like, are we close to that? Are there smart glasses out there now that you think are, are, are going to, uh, become like a there's no smart glasses product now that's that's available but the tech is trending that way we got to get smaller semiconductors smaller batteries um, we probably have to offload a lot of the computation off of the device to some other computer that's either sitting in our home or maybe sitting in our pocket like the mobile devices we have right now um, because you're going to really want it to be like normal sunglasses. So it's way far off from it right now, but like the Facebook Ray-Bans is kind of the form factor that you'd want. Now those don't do a whole lot, but, but that's getting, that's sort of showing us maybe ergonomically what that device should feel like. Snap also has a product, um, you know, theirs has 30 minutes of battery life. So we've got to do a lot more in like the very fundamental technologies. So all the work in deep tech and batteries and, you know, really, really tiny transistors, all that stuff that we need to do is going to be super important for making this stuff ergonomically feasible. Otherwise, I just don't think people will adopt it. But it's at the point that we could wear a normal pair of glasses and we can look out into the world and we have, because of those glasses, the equivalent of the projected, you know, surfaces that you've got from, you know, minority report or whatever. And you've got the ability to do image recognition in the environment around you so that you can tag it to interesting information, have IOT, internet of things kind of data feeds into the environments so that you can see what's going around you in an informed way so that you can apply AI to what's going on around you to help you predict what's happening in the environment or let you know about things that you'd want to know about that maybe so, so, human so, aren't noticing. Yeah, what would be an example of that? Let's fast forward a few years. Suppose the ergonomics are taken care of and you have all of uh, these, uh, you know, these technology pieces that you talked about. You put on your smart glasses, you go outside. What are the kinds of things you would do to interface with, with the metaverse? And how does that relate to kind of where we... Yeah, go, go outside is a good one. So I'm a hiker and a mountain climber. So I think about some of these things a lot. But like, um, you know, one interesting example is identifying things in the world around you. So identify a plant, for example. Now, there's a difference between push and pull. And this is where, I, this is a piece that I think... Um, is something people aren't thinking about so much when they think about what happens when you pervasively have always on technologies that are capable of interpreting the environment around you. Because I think the assumption is in my plant identification example, which is really just one example to get you thinking about what this means. In the world of pull, like I've got my phone app now, which can do plant identification, but I have to think of going and holding up my camera to the plant and saying, okay, what is this plant? Now, maybe if I'm hiking in an area, what I really don't want to do is have to go and look at every plant and figure it out. I want 
the AR setup to actually tell me, hey, there is a really cool rare plant over here. Go check it out and let me know because it's monitoring. And then you could even take it to the next level. I'm with a hiking group and we're capturing information from the environment and we're effectively networked together. Maybe we're all running that app concurrently so that even if I'm not personally looking at it, I could grab that information from someone else and inform the group. So my, my little plant identification example isn't to point at botany as the be all end all case of AR, but maybe just a simple case that you can relate to, to think about what happens when you start having a continuous feed of this kind of information and you start combining it with other technologies like all the versions of AI, in this case, image recognition, and then I, as a user, of course, I'm going to want some agency in this to decide, well, what are the pieces of information that I want to be made aware of? How will I work with that information? What apps running on my device am I going to allow to actually work with that information? Kind of a, think of it almost like, what do we do with location-aware technologies right now, geospatially-aware technologies on your phone? Well, it's really just a, a piece of data that you can map to a map. And then lots of apps work with that. You can start to think about a world in which there's all kinds of IoT feeds, image feeds, all kinds of data that's being recognized by AI pre-filters and whatnot that can inform a whole new set of applications. So that's uh, that's one use case. And of course, games. Like we're all going to play games in AR as well because we're going to add content to the real world around us, whether it's virtual beings and characters and and lots of fun things to do. Would these be advanced versions of Pokemon Go? Do you think? Like, uh, what kind of games you know could you envision in in that kind of a uh, interface with the physical world? Uh, and and then we'll we'll come back to talk more about cryptocurrency and <laughs> where we are today. But I want to stay on this kind of interface and what's possible for a few more minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's it's kind of like just to add magic, more magic to the world, right? And the, allow us to understand it more, give us all the benefit of all this AI technology that's being trained to inform us of things. And on the fun and games entertainment side, like there's a whole range of things there. Games, of course, which I just mentioned, like. Sure, there's going to be some advanced version of Pokemon Go for sure, but you can start to think about not just having location-based stuff and, and essentially just that's just a game about checking in in locations for the most part. Now, because you've got gesture recognition and speech recognition and image recognition, and you're able to pull all that information in and add something to the world, I mean, that's going to be a huge number of applications, everything from live action role-playing to you name it. And then think about real world experiences as well that are not currently classed as a game. Like music, I think, is a hugely interesting set of use cases. So you can imagine going to a concert in physical space where the concert has actually been choreographed to add all of this really interesting content and experience to what you have through AR in this, in this kind of system. But then you can also flip it as well, because I think what the metaverse will do for us is it's part of bringing in an age of abundance and allowing people to have experiences that they either are never going to have or are just super scarce or super expensive in the real world. And my music example is there's only so many front row seats at a concert. Right. Well, in virtual space, what we could do is completely recraft the experience so that everybody gets the equivalent of a front row seat. In fact, you could bring in a whole new class of experiences in which we completely dematerialize space and it, and it isn't really even about that anymore. So that's, I think, one of my other thoughts about the metaverse, particularly as we apply it to things like I don't know, simulation hypothesis, which is... I kind of hope that the metaverse we're building isn't just about cloning reality so that we can live in a mirror of reality all the time. I want right. it to have whole new types of experiences that take advantage of abundance and change the law of physics and reality so that we can do things that just aren't even possible in physical space. It's hmm. interesting. Well, you know, uh, speaking of uh, 
uh, sci-fi and, and Neil Stevenson, he had a new book uh, last year or the year before called Fall. I don't know if you've read it, but I haven't was, read it yet. No. Uh, you know, it was mostly about this idea of a digital afterlife, but there was a whole nother aspect, you know, which intersects <laughs> a little bit with simulation theory of being taking your brain's connect home and uploading it. But there was another aspect of it, which was uh, more like AR with glasses and information coming in from the world. And one of the problems was there was too much information, right? So if you think having a lot of information on social media today is a lot, imagine getting information from everything around you. And so you had to like have a screener, like they'd hire people who were kind of like, I don't know, online secretaries or personal assistants that would like screen all the information that's coming. Uh, and, and that's probably where, where AI would come in. So, you know, that could yeah. be pretty interesting. Yeah, it'll, it'll be AI based. I, I don't think too many people, myself included, want to live in the equivalent of Times Square on a continuous basis with just a flood of information. And you can imagine all the advertising messages and whatnot. So um, it's, it's going to require a certain amount of agency at the user level to define what are the feeds? What do I want augmented? Like, I think I, I see a lot of layers to this. There's going to be information processing layers that receive information, recognize it, tag things that exist in the world around us, feed it up to applications that work with that information, and then do the interesting things with it and report it to the interface that we've permitted it to. Yeah, I, it can't be just um, a million information streams or, or we won't be able to make sense of it all. Yep, makes sense. Well, okay, so we fast forward today from the virtual reality phase to a couple of years ago, uh, you know, there were articles about the metaverse and, you know, they were talking about uh, the Travis Scott concert in Fortnite, which had, I forget the number, was it 12 million or 20 million participants as the most attendant concert ever? Um, 30 million or something. 30 million, yeah. yeah. Huge, huge, and now huge there have numbers. been, you know, some in Roblox as well yeah. that are, are getting up to those numbers as well. But, you know, the, the leading candidates for the metaverse were Roblox, Fortnite, and the leading development environments were like Unity and uh, Unreal. But of course, that was still thinking about it as 3D sort of worlds without virtual reality in this case, but still 3D worlds where you have an yeah. avatar and you establish presence. So what's different today from that vision from just a couple of years ago? Yeah. Well, that's why I say the metaverse is really the internet, right? The meta, that's why the metaverse is the next generation of the internet. So you're going to have Roblox and you're going to have a million worlds crafted in Unity, just as you have millions of various experiences inside Roblox. So like Roblox isn't one thing even on its own. It's actually a collection of all these different things that people have made. Fortnite maybe will be a certain kind of a hub for a set of experiences. They've been investing in a lot of like IP licensing to try to bring character avatars from all kinds of different worlds into Fortnite. So I, but no one of those things is going to define what the metaverse is any more than one entity can own the internet. It's going to be much more decentralized in the future because people have such different tastes and want different experiences. Well, are there standards? So, you know, even though the internet is decentralized, it was, you know, having the, the World Wide Web back in, what is it, 92 or 93 or four, whenever it was introduced and having web browsers. And so there was a standard that everybody could build their websites to. And that allowed one person to browse a bunch of different sites. Uh, whereas with the metaverse, you know, it seems a, a lot more fuzzy. So are there standards that need to emerge uh, one, and then two, uh, you know, does blockchain, cryptocurrency, and NFTs provide a way to do portability of digital goods across different domains and environments? You know, so I guess those would be uh, the next two <laughs> things to come. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's a lot to unpack there. So um, crypto, let's maybe return to that in a moment, but just sort of the raw building blocks of the technology, like you know, it all starts with stuff like TCP IP and just getting the information to us. But in terms of the programming layer that people use, there are emerging technologies and standards. You've got stuff like WASM that's able to deliver, you know, real code applications through web type technology. You've got OpenXR, which, you know, is a way to deliver VR, AR kind of experiences in a standards-based way. In fact, Facebook of all companies um, 
only a few weeks ago announced that they were deprecating all of the op- Oculus proprietary APIs in favor of adopting OpenXR. So I, I, uh, I don't know exactly what Mark Zuckerberg is thinking and, and where he's going with that. Maybe it's just because having more developers on a standard allows them to aggregate lots of advertising in a consistent way across everything. You know, they are an advertising company. So I wonder if that, where that plays in, but that's actually encouraging that Facebook wants to support a standard like OpenXR, because I think there are going to be a set of standards and because they're, it's such a diverse set of things. Like sometimes you're in an immersive, you know, virtual world space, like, might be appropriate from an MMORPG or some of these live music experiences and whatnot. In other cases, it might not even be 3D, or maybe it's something like this company Tilt 5, where they are doing games where it's on a surface of a table and it's actually geared towards like strategy games and the kind of you know dungeons and dragons and card games and things that we would actually play in person. What they're doing is you wear the AR glasses and y'all look at this shared table space. So like very, very different than being inside a virtual world space experientially and how you'd go about building it. So I, I think it is going to be this re-decentralization of the internet back to a set of technologies that let anybody play a part. The web is pretty decentralized as it stands. The domain name system is decentralized. What isn't are these very colossal like social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter and whatnot, where, you know, once you and your friends are there, it kind of creates this virtuous cycle where you'd really just rather stay there because that's where your friends are already and you're not going to go somewhere else. So they have got massive, massive barriers to entry around that. Um, but I, I think that a lot of games and experiences just function a little bit differently than that. Now, right now, in a lot of game development, for example, there's still a lot of barriers to player discovery, to the app stores generally take a big big cut, even though that might be changing. Right, with the um, recent lawsuit, right? <laughs> yeah. I've been, so I've been on be... this since 2010, you know, with Apple having sort of absolute authority, but that's for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's there's a lot of gatekeepers around apps and gatekeepers around social networks in particular. Um, but I think with some of these newer technologies coming along, that has a real opportunity to change. Now, one aspect of that that you meant that you asked about a little while ago was crypto and, and blockchain. So I guess take a step back for a moment. Like, why is this interesting and, and why should people care about this who might be listening? So I I think if you look at the internet as it's structured up until Bitcoin, basically, it was essentially a network of information. So you could go to a server and get information and servers could exchange information or I can load up my web browser and I could grab information. So it was very frictionless in terms of information exchange. And that's why it took off versus all the other proprietary online services, CompuServes and America Online and all that stuff that was sort of like the er version of this stuff. It was all replaced by the World Wide Web because anybody in a decentralized manner could launch an information publishing business or a website with an application in it. Now, that hasn't been true with money and financial assets, though, because if you want to exchange a financial asset with someone in real life, if we met in real life, I should stop using the words real life. If we met (laughs) in physical space, I could hand you a $20 bill And we have just, in a peer-to-peer way, exchanged money with each other. That's pretty much the only way that you and I actually can exchange things um, in the traditional money system on a direct basis. So what that means is that for all the applications that exist online up until cryptocurrency, you had to have banks or centralized systems like the credit card networks 
operating as an intermediary to facilitate a transfer of funds from one to another, which means that there's an awful lot of money in creating that infrastructure, managing it, and a lot of rent takers, tax takers all along the way. What crypto does is it's allowed that to happen on a peer-to-peer basis. Now, if you fast forward past Bitcoin into the age of Ethereum and smart contracts, what that has now enabled is that you can allow financial transactions around assets, including currencies, but also virtual goods, NFTs people have been talking about a lot this year, where the smart contract governs how you and I will exchange that particular asset or a piece of currency. And that doesn't require us to either trust each other or trust a third party that acts as this intermediary. So the benefit now of this is decentralization of all of these financial applications, which means that people can create just as they created software components that could consume information, massage it, apply AI, build it into databases, do whatever you wanted to do, build websites in interesting ways. People could build all these little information and software Legos from which all kinds of other things would be built. Now you're doing the same thing with financial assets where those exchanges can take place and people can create financial Legos and financial components. And really it just comes down to enabling much smaller teams or even individual people to dream much bigger in terms of the things that they can create. Because when you get rid of either these big central authorities that manage everything or the alternative, which is invest millions and millions and millions of dollars building, I don't know, market plates and auction infrastructures and training the market to trust you enough, you as a developer now can just participate in that. And it's, a, it's an important part of the metaverse and where it's going, because I do have this thesis around the whole re-decentralization of the internet and really enabling creators and application developers to all participate in this. And I think the way to enable it is to just maximize freedom, to allow people really to envision an idea, not have to go ask Facebook or Visa MasterCard or whoever the traditional gatekeepers have been, you don't, you shouldn't have to ask them to do it. And then what that does is it also allows these individual Legos and components and content to participate directly with each other as well, so that you get lots of interesting combinations of, of logic applications experience. Yeah. And on that, you know, on that track, it seems to me that with NFTs, you know, Cryptocurrency has been around for a while. And so what's different within the last couple of years? Uh, and it seems to me that the rise of NFTs have taken a mechanic that has been well understood now by a new generation of gamers, which is you buy a digital good, you own it, you can sell it to somebody else, right? Going back to the old car trading cards. Now people are doing that you know, across games, but also you're getting a lot of media figures, right? Uh, who are coming in, you know, and buying, whether it's, uh, I don't know, who's the basketball player who just paid a couple million dollars for an NFT. It was a Steph Curry, I think, or someone. Uh, and you've got, you know, people like Katy Perry coming out with NFTs and you've got kind of the entertainment world paying attention in a way maybe that they haven't before. Uh, and these are the, you know, the groups that are creating content, right? Uh, whether it's the, you know, sports like NBA top shots and, and people can go and buy NFTs there. So it seems to me that it's taken a gaming mechanic in a way and introduced it outside of any particular game. Uh, and so, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, NFTs and digital goods? And do you think that's going to be a key part of the metaverse moving forward? Or is it just about the financial transactions that come with that cryptocurrency? Oh, no, virtual goods is a hugely important part of it. It all started with smart contracts. Smart contracts actually enabled a huge range of activities beyond simply having currencies that we could exchange online. NFTs is one of them. There's lots of other interesting applications of smart contracts as well. DAOs, what we call distributed autonomous organizations, is also you know, like a whole other really interesting 
application of NFTs where you can apply, where you can essentially create a governance structure to an organization and to take it back to NFTs, we'll combine the two together. Like there's this really interesting organization built as a DAO called Yield Guild, who are organizing a group of players together to go and play NFT-based games, train people on how to win them, develop the assets, acquire the assets. And then what they do is they sell some of this stuff to other people who don't want to do all of the work and just want to enjoy like the characters and stuff. So the interesting thing is if you go back in time on games, like companies like Blizzard, World of Warcraft, they all hated the idea of like gold farmers, right? Because they actually... <laughs> took money away, took fun away from the experience, but now you're getting a whole class of games people are calling play to earn, which have actually built in that mechanic. So they would listen to the market. The market was saying, we want to play this way. And they're like, okay, here's a way you can do that. And we'll do it by opening it up, building the whole a game economy from day one to have the idea that there will be this type of player in it. And you have access to because of smart contracts now, not only can you own the NFT, but you can have open marketplaces like OpenSea and whatnot, where people can actually exchange and put things up for sale. You don't have to trust a marketplace to do this for you because it's all built on the blockchain. It's open and transparent and trustless. So virtual goods has become most of the revenue in the game industry. So the game industry is, you know, approaching $200 billion in revenue. It'll probably be $400 billion in revenue over the next five years. Um, and it's mostly virtual goods now. And that's because people want to own stuff and customize their experience and own property in virtual spaces and express themselves. There's a lot of different motivators for why people want virtual goods in a particular game or not. But it all comes back to what we were talking about earlier, like virtual identity, acceptance of these virtual things as being part of your experience, part of your reality is, is now something that, that people accept. Now, in the metaverse, you're going to be able to buy something and it could even potentially have a life beyond an individual game. We have yet to see that happen, but interoperability, the ability to build new code on top of the asset and give it a new life, give it some continuity beyond the initial game experience. These are all things that you could do in an open and transparent um, implementation of virtual goods, which is all that NFTs are. NFTs is like a title system that says you own this thing, but it's then left to the applications, the games, the exchanges, the marketplaces, all the things that are built around it to actually interpret what it means to now own that. Makes sense. Well, you know, this is such a big topic when we talk about the metaverse. We could go on for hours, but we're reaching the end of our time here. So uh, let's talk about where we are today and the services that are going to be needed. And maybe you can talk a little bit about Beamable and uh, the game-related services that you guys are providing uh, as we kind of wrap up here. Sure. You know, the... I, my, my core thesis is just that it has to be easy to be a creator in the metaverse. If you look at something like Roblox, so Roblox has 7 million monthly active developers. Like the audience itself is, is you know, another order of magnitude bigger than that. But every month there's like 7 million people, according to their recent disclosures, that are building stuff. Why? Well, it's a top-down fully integrated system. You've got the discovery mechanisms, the 3D engine, the developer tool, the scripting language, the server architecture. It's all there bolted together. It makes it super easy for you. But my view of the metaverse is just that you don't have to be in a walled garden to enjoy that, or you shouldn't be in a walled garden to enjoy that. I, I super admire everything that Roblox has done, but I want to help people that are building games or building metaverse experiences really just have the freedom to do that however they want, to build whatever they want, to not ask permission for it, have the kind of features and game experience and art that you really care about, and then just deliver that wherever you want without having to 
you know, live in someone else's playground. So what that needs is the next level of, you know, technology that makes it super easy for creators to do that. So phase one has already happened, 3D engines. So Unity and Unreal both make a 3D engine technology. Roblox has their own 3D engine technology. That's about the visualization layer of all of these experiences. The next level is how do you bring together all of the stuff that happens in these worlds and persistent spaces? So the economy, the social structure, the connections between people, the real-time aspects, the interactions. So that stuff happens up in the cloud. So we're providing cloud-based infrastructure so that it's really easy to do stuff. Easy as Roblox, but with the freedom to do, where, do it wherever you want. Great. Uh, and where can people uh, find your blog, which is called Building the Metaverse, I believe, right? Yeah, it's on Medium. If, if you search on uh, John Radoff Metaverse, I think you'll find it Okay. pretty easily. <laughs> okay, awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time you know, out of uh, building the metaverse to talk about building <laughs> the metaverse and how it's evolved and uh, perhaps uh, you know, have you on again sometime to talk about you know, some stuff we didn't get into, like brain-computer interfaces. <laughs> Where are we going to go with the metaverse over the next you know, 10, 20 years or so? <laughs> yeah. That's the challenge of talking about the metaverse is that I, I see it as so, like this convergence of trends around being informed by games and real-time activity and creators, but it's, you know, you, un, you can unpack it very easily to like dozens of major technological domains that are all super relevant from AI to blockchain to all this stuff that are all required to build these kinds of worlds. And, and I love talking about that stuff. I mean, Beamable is very much about the here and now health solving problems for people who want to make games. But over the next decade, I think what's interesting to me about the metaverse is all of these other applications we're talking about, they're going to be built on the same technologies that games are. And we want to kind of be there ahead of that. So thanks. It's fun. It's really fun to talk about this. I do unpack a lot of these things on my blog. So invite everybody to listen. And yeah, definitely. If you haven't read John's blog, you definitely should. Uh, if you want to learn about the metaverse and where it's going and how to build pieces of it. All right. Thanks so much, John, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Riz.